Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, production of iHeartRadio. So, Samantha, we recently did an episode on blogging, and you said you used to have a blog on a site I'd never heard of, Zanga. Yes. Yes? Yes. And you said it was, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, defunct. But you didn't say what was on there other than vague promises it was very angsty (laughs) and might not have been politically correct. (laughs) Well, I don't really know because there's really no telling what I had written. But I do remember some sad poems Mm -hmm. and thoughts. Yeah. And then also I was really, really hard into the uh, Christian world. So I'm sure there was a lot of religious ideas and thought processes. But that's all I can remember. Did you engage with the the audience at all? Commenters or anything like that? Of course. So I was also very picky in general Mm. and uh, cautious about who knew what site I had. I did have some uh, looky-loos who came through (laughs) and found me. I did. That happened a couple of times. I remember that and me panicking like, oh, no, Uh, because all I had was a username, which makes no sense because it's just like made up from my entire full name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just a bunch of letters put together, essentially. And then, yeah, that's it. That's all I had in there. And it was public, though. But if mm-hmm. someone commented on it, typically they were all very nice comments. I would respond. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple that had conversations. But again, there were majority of the friends that I would see on a yeah. daily basis. And we, as a group, all had Zanga community. Oh. <laughs> Did you have yes. a re- regular update schedule? Or was it just whenever inspiration? Oh, no. Yeah, whenever I mm. felt like it. Mm-hmm. Well, I I believe I've only posted to a blog once, and it was a blog that was run by an organization I was a part of when I was in college called ISEC, which is kind of like an international travel blog. And I published once like a guest post about when I had gone to China, and it was on a, a based on Tumblr, I believe. I did have to design a website, and I can't remember where I hosted that, but that was also like a final project I had to do in one of my college classes. I will say, we talked about this in our blog episode, 
where the similarities between fan fiction and blogging, and I did post fan fiction, and I did have a regular update schedule. And I would, if people reviewed, I would respond to the reviews. Nice. Because I was so flattered. I was so terrified that they were all going to be mean, and they were almost always nice, and I would respond. But it's a very stressful <laughs> experience. It really is. I feel that way about social media today. I'm like, if yeah. I see a lot of alerts, I'm like, oh my God, what did yeah. we do? Yeah, what, what have I done? Yep. Yeah. I am the exact same way. <laughs> but it's almost always nice, but you get yeah. those nerves. Um, yeah, every time. For sure, for sure. But since we did recently do kind of an updated episode on a look at women in blogging, we wanted to bring back this classic on the mommy blog or mom blog in particular. So please enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, today we have a special podcast episode because I got to chat with Emily Matcher, who is the author of the upcoming book, Homeward Bound, The New Cult of Domesticity. And it is coming out, it's slated to come out in May of 2013. So right around the corner, but you can check out her blogging over at newdomesticity.com. And the reason why we wanted to talk to Matcher about new domesticity is because it ties into a lot of things that we talk about on the podcast. And I feel like a lot of interests that podcast listeners have. Yeah, she's Matcher's a really interesting woman. This whole idea of new domesticity being something that a lot of women are being attracted to. And there's this very interesting debate that that we've kind of been keeping tabs on about. Is this something that helps women or is this somehow sending women back to the Stone Age and oppressing them? So there's a lot of arguments on both sides. Yeah. And um, in our chat with uh, Emily Matcher, she'll give us more details about what new domesticity is. But just for an, a general idea, we're talking about the revival of things like knitting and handcrafts. Etsy is a great online source just for a glimpse of new domesticity and even more uh, intensive, time-intensive things like backyard chicken keeping, canning, preserving, uh, really a return to, I guess, lost domestic arts that were replaced by more convenient appliances or techniques or just... Yeah, TV dinners. TV dinners. Things like that. Yeah, and she she does talk about uh, how there's this return um, from what our mothers and grandmothers were doing which is maybe relying on those TV dinners, maybe not cooking those homemade pies or knitting sweaters as you know as much as our predecessors were. Yeah, and we first noticed Emily's work over at Salon when we were researching our episode on Pinterest, and she uh, she wrote about the why I can't stop reading Mormon housewife blogs, and it's a great post uh, where she talks about um, Mormon mommy bloggers and sort of the this Pinterest perfect life. It seems like a lot of them are living, and how that ties into new domesticity and her fascination with that in comparison to how she lives her own day-to-day life in a much less Pinterest perfect way, which I think, you know, you and I, Caroline, can probably both <laughs> relate to very strongly. Um, so, so yeah, we chatted with Emily. She is living currently in China, 
So we had an international conversation Ooh. with her. And uh, I guess why don't we listen to what Emily had to say about New Domesticity, her book that's coming out, what New Domesticity is, how men play a role in this stuff as well, and some other things. And uh, so why don't we kick off my interview with Emily, uh, with the question I asked her of what got her interested in new domesticity and if she could offer some more insight into what exactly that is. So ladies and gents, please enjoy our conversation with Emily Matcher. So new domesticity is just the title that I'm sort of uh, throwing at uh, a variety of interrelated things. Um, but generally speaking, the sort of the resurgence of interest in old fashioned domestic stuff, you know, and this is everything from the, you know, knitting, the, the crafting revival, you know, we've seen knitting and Etsy and crocheting and all this stuff is hip again you know, um, and the foodie movement and people being really into food and home cooking all the way through to sort of neo-homesteading, um, mm-hmm. you know, people raising chickens in their backyard and uh, and wanting to get back to basics and that whole thing. And so I sort of look at it as part of, you know, one larger phenomenon. That's what I'm calling new domesticity. Um, and yeah, I, I got interested in it because as, um, as a, a writer who writes a lot about about food and culture, I kept um, meeting people who were like really into canning jam, you know, but it Mm -hmm. wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just, you know, a hobby. It was sort of part of a lifestyle. And, um, you know, I'd meet, meet, you know, women that were into attachment parenting who homeschooled their kids and baked all their own bread and raised goats. and, And I began to see that this was sort of it was a, a a larger lifestyle movement that these things were sort of pieces of, um, and that's when I got I got sort of curious about it as um, as a bigger thing, you know, wondering where it came from and and what it meant. Uh, well, you mentioned on uh, the website one of the the blog posts when you you'd worked out the the working title for the book and how it um, is a nod to uh, the the Victorian era cult of domesticity, which has like those, the four cardinal virtues of piety, purity, submission, (laughs) and domesticity. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what might be the cardinal virtues of the cult of new domesticity. (laughs) I think the cardinal virtue um, would probably be DIY, do it yourself. Um, And this takes a lot of forms. I think there's a there's a real impetus in this movement to to do things yourself, you know, and this could be cooking from scratch or selling your own clothes or growing your own veggies, you know, all the way through homeschooling your own children. It's very much about sort of, you know, going outside the system and um and and doing things yourself. So I would say that's the the cardinal virtue, although things like um you certainly see sort of an interest in purity when it comes to food and things like that, which uh, which definitely have parallels with the 19th century cult of domesticity. And and generally sort of the, uh, I think the idea, even if it's not spoken, um, that by doing this stuff, you are a better person, a better woman, a better mother. Uh, well, I think it, it's really interesting in reading about um, sort of what is 
driving a lot of this, a lot of the resurgence for these, um, you know, sort of uh, crafts from a, a slower time. And, uh, and you talk about how it's linked a lot of times to a dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction, excuse me, with, you know, the idea of, you know, the nine to five world sitting in a cubicle, being a weekend warrior. And uh, is it, are we just looking back to, you know, wanting a bygone era of, of a slower and even like less convenient time, even though, you know, the, the lifestyle that we have now is supposed to be, um, you know, faster and easier and, and all of that. You know, I think there's a real nostalgia for what people perceive as a sort of simpler and more wholesome time. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, we, we live in a super high tech society and, you know, just on a very basic level, um, you know, when you work at a computer all day, I think we have, you know, humans have a pretty, you know, natural urge. We like to do things with our hands, right? You know, and so I think when you're, when you're sort of separated from that, when you're in an office, when you're, you know, living in this high tech world, people have a craving for, for, you know, tactile connection. And so I think a lot of stuff like, you know, crafting and cooking has to do with people wanting to reclaim that connection, being be able to work with their hands. Um, and then, you know, people, this is, a, this, we're living in a, in a pretty anxious era for a lot of reasons, you know, uh, the economy and the environment and political instability and war and all these things that make people, people anxious. I think people, crave what they perceive as a more simple and stable time you know this idea that oh you know back in the day when you know in our great grandparents era you worked on the farm and you made your own things and you you know didn't have to go work this horrible nine to five job that you hate that you could lose any day anyway um i think that creates a sort of powerful urge to to get back to what people perceive as the basics Mm -hmm. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands. 
not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Um, well, can you talk a little bit about the role of the internet and being wired and how that relates to new domesticity? Because it seems like on the one hand that, um, you know, our constant connection uh, via the internet and social media and just the fast pace that comes along with that maybe fuels some of that anxiety that you're talking about uh, that makes us want to, you know, slow things down and uh, feel that nostalgia. But at the same time, too, it seems like the internet is also facilitated all of these communities and platforms, uh, things like Etsy. Uh, so I was just wondering what, what your take on how, how the internet, internet uh, relates to all of this would be. Well, I think you, you totally hit on it. I think um, the internet both drives new dust domesticity and new domesticity is also a reaction against the internet culture to some degree. I definitely do not think that new domesticity would exist at all without the internet. I think, um, you know, like you said, it has facilitated um, the revival of a lot of this stuff. You know, the crafting movement really came out of um, out of websites dedicated to crafting, and now we have stuff like Etsy and um, and Ravelry, which is a knitting website, um, and you know, Pinterest, where people share crafts and ideas. Um, and then there's the whole world of blogs, you know, and food blogs and people sharing recipes. And these have created like these real communities and I think really driven interest in stuff like, you know, do it yourself and from scratch cooking and, um, and, 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 you know, created these communities and created, you know, uh, a sort of sense um, of aspiration. If you look at these, you know, neo-domestic blogs, they're so beautiful and, you know, everything's photographed so nicely and you look at them and even if you're not at all like domestic or interested in cooking or crafty, it's kind of hard not to look at some of these, you know, lifestyle blogs and go, oh, you know, I want that. Um, and uh, and I think, yeah, and on, on the flip side of that, there's just the fact of the internet being this, you know, 24-7 technological invasion of your home that I think a lot of people want to escape from when they're, you know, going back to basics, like, uh, you know, when you're spending your time doing something tactile, like cooking or, uh, or knitting, or, you know, growing veggies in your backyard, you're making a, you know, deliberate choice to step away from internet culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you think that, um, and this is just kind of on a side note, that, uh, because I feel like the rise of the quote-unquote mommy bloggers almost like predated the popularity of Etsy and Ravelry and these other like larger communities and do you think that maybe mom bloggers in a way sort of and having that platform uh, I don't know uh, showed the value of housework in a way that maybe it had been dismissed for a little while is just, you know, oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom. But now you can actually see all of these things that they're doing and this incredible food that they're making and uh, their home design or however they're doing it, if that makes sense. No, yeah, I think you you totally hit it on the head. Um, 
I think there has been a movement for for a while and probably a little bit predating the internet, um, you know, maybe sort of starting in the 90s to to reclaim, you know, old-fashioned women's work, like um, like crafts. I think there's a big crafting revival that started with sort of the punk rock riot girl movement in the 90s with, you know, women saying, hey, like, it's cool in punk rock to do uh, crocheting and make your own clothes and stuff like that. And that sort of... Uh, grew into a, a whole movement to to reclaim the domestic to reclaim respect from for old-fashioned women's work which you know had been very denigrated over the years if you look at you know like bust magazine is this you know sort of um third wave feminist magazine that started um you know running these sort of kitschy pictures of housewives and you know how to cleaning articles like in the late 90s early 2000s as sort of this big, you know, this this movement to um to sort of reclaim reclaim women's work as something of value, and I think the mom blogging ended up being part a big part of that because a lot of I think a lot of the reason that women's work has been historically devalued is because it's invisible. You don't, you know, you don't know what your neighbor's dinner looks like. You don't see her folding her laundry. You don't see any of that stuff. And so I think that's one of the reasons it was very hard to be a housewife was because you didn't get any external validation. And especially, you know, once women started getting educations and started having experience in the workforce and got used to the external validation of, you know, being in a workplace or getting grades in school, I think a lot of people found it very hard to not get that anymore and I think mom blogs um, uh, unintentionally ended up becoming this venue for people to show off their um, what they did in the home and thereby gain some some validation for it you know like you might cook dinner every night and uh, you know maybe your husband and your kids say thank you maybe they don't but if you photograph your dinner and you put the recipe online people are going to go, Hey, Oh, awesome. You know, great recipe. And you're going to get, you're going to get validation. And I think that's actually this pretty like phenomenal, uh, important effect of, um, of mom blogs and lifestyle blogs is that all of a sudden, you know, this women's work that's been invisible for, you know, since the dawn of time, all of a sudden has this, um, very public platform, mm -hmm. you know? Well, it's interesting. Like uh, there was, it reminds me too of uh, of a post <laughs> that you had on the website about um, whether or not we were almost going overboard. Like you know, I think you were talking something about going on apartment therapy and and wondering like whether or not you should like put curtains up, but then you didn't even want to ask because it's like now we're almost to the point to where everything you know looks so perfect online, and we have these like aspirational blogs that we look like look at and Pinterest and all of this um, so I wonder if are is there a danger in especially in talking about this within the framework of feminism is there a danger in mm -hmm. exalting this quote-unquote women's work too much to where we're back in the same place we were where uh, you know back to the, something along the lines of the you know the Victorian cult of domesticity where a woman's worth is found mm -hmm. in what her home looks like well that's exactly exactly the problem you know on the one hand of course you know people should be validated for the work they do um, on the other hand the sort of um, 
the all the sharing of uh of domesticity online does create a sense of competition and does there is a sense in which it raises the bar on a on what it takes to be a good um a good housekeeper a good uh, a good mother or a good woman you know because before the internet like you know the housework was invisible you didn't know what your neighbor's closet looked like you didn't know what your neighbor's dinner looked like and now you can go online you can look at blogs you can see you know what these strangers are cooking and eating and what their kids are wearing and the cute craft projects they did and you know of course this isn't the full view of their lives you know naturally it's this completely edited mediated view of their life that's um, put on the blog for public consumption but I think people have a hard time reading between the lines there, you know, because blogs are supposed to be this very authentic, you know, very personal medium. And there becomes, we get this really, you know, uncomfortable gray area where, um, you know, a lot of bloggers are sort of semi-professionals taking sort of semi-professional pictures of their semi-professional cooking and decorating. And, you know, regular people go, oh, you know, now I feel bad about myself. Why doesn't my food look like that? Why doesn't my living room look like that? Um, and it does create a culture in which, you know, the the whole, you know, thousands of women are gaining this validation for being good housekeepers, which is sort of, in my mind, uncomfortably close to the whole cult of domesticity, you know. Um, people are gaining validation from having, you know, the cutest living rooms or the the nicest looking dinner. So, um, so yeah, on the one hand, I think that, you know, it's great that people can be validated for the hard work they do in the home. On the other hand, I do worry that it, the whole culture of lifestyle blogs, you know, raises the bar for ordinary women who spend a lot of time looking at semi-professional blogs and feeling bad about themselves and feeling like their self-worth is really tied up and in how well they keep their home. Yeah, because it also seems to add an, another wrinkle to the the whole debate that uh, about about whether or not women can have it all. You know, we, because for so long <laughs> it's been something that's more just you know looking for career success in the workplace and yes, childcare and managing all of that. But it, now there's sort of a new um, a new aspect to it as well. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, when, you know, can we have the the career success in the corner office and also have our own canned jam that we can bring into office parties? You know what I mean? Like, it seems like there's so there's so much now, like, it's a good thing that uh, women's work is is being validated in a lot of ways, like in terms of uh, the domestic sphere. But where does this square with work outside of the home? Right, right. Well, um, you know, I think one of the big problems is that, you know, in in new domesticity sort of as a movement, um, a lot of the stuff gets sort of very moralized because it's tied up with, um, you know, questions of consumerism and questions of environmentalism and questions of what kind of food is good and safe to eat, right? So, you know, it's easy enough when somebody's just knitting for a hobby, but, um, you know, you get it's much more complicated than that. You get, um, you know, a lot of talk about, well, you know, 
you should be cooking from scratch because that's the way, that's the only way that it's healthy for your family. And, you know, you should be knowing your farmer and going to the farmer's market. You should be buying organic and you should be, you know, growing your own veggies and, you know, soaking your grains and doing all these things because it's the right thing to do for your children's health and it's the right thing to do for the environment and for your local community. And, um, you know, oh, you should be, you know, making your own cleaning solutions out of vinegar because, you know, it's good for the environment and don't take lazy shortcuts because that's bad for the environment. And, oh, you know, if you go out and buy things or hire, you know, babysitters to go to the movies, you know, that's sort of consumerist. I think, um, I think there's this there's this huge sort of moralization of the domestic realm, this idea that your domestic choices can have these huge, you know, impacts on the world. Like, of course, people are going to feel like they're never doing it right, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that makes it, you know, women, like you said, already have a hard enough time trying to keep things together in terms of job and childcare. And now there's also this sense that, you know, well, you can't just take a shortcut by, you know, buying, you know, pre-made meals or dropping your kids off at daycare because that's somehow, you know, immoral, wrong, and and, and bad for your children and bad for the world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that puts a huge amount of pressure on women. Um, well, I'm also really curious about the people that you've met through uh, this new domesticity research and wondering, I mean, obviously there's the the cornerstone DIY ethic and, um, you know, the embrace of going more natural and, and slower in a way. Uh, but have you noticed certain hallmarks of people who are really drawn and very invested in um, these kinds of, of new domesticity? Mm-hmm. Like what they have in common with each other. Yeah, if there are any, like, um, I don't know, any ser- types of personality traits. I feel like, like for instance, like people that I know who are incredibly crafty are just, like, in- very organized and uh, very creative and, and things like that. So I was just wondering uh, if you would notice certain, I don't know, shared traits uh, or anything like that. Well, I'll I'll say that there's a huge variety of people doing this, and obviously it's not all women. And I, I did interview um, for my for my blog and for my book, um, plenty of men, and that there are people in different socioeconomic groups and and different um, sort of political beliefs too. You get a lot of you know sort of very conservative Christian women embracing DIY and natural parenting and that whole thing, um, as well as sort of your stereotypical crunchy liberals. But I will say. Um, I think I think one of the things that a lot, though not all, of um, of women that are very into new domesticity have in common is that they are very smart, generally educated, and really creative, but for one reason or the other have not connected with a career. And this is this doesn't mean they don't have one, you know, but they might not find it totally satisfying or it might be part time or they might have, you know, left it after their children were born. Um, And I think, you know, being creative and, um, and educated and engaged, they find, you know, engaging in new domesticity, a way of, um, you know, a way of using their energies and, and, and using their creativity, um, 
in the absence of a job or the absence of a really satisfying job, you know, so if you're doing a lot of super intensive domestic stuff all the time, you know, you're, say you're homeschooling your kids or you're just, um, you have a huge garden that you're in every day or you're sewing your own clothes or you're, you know, you're raising chickens, that sort of becomes like a, a career in a sense for some people and even people who don't take it that far, I think, you know. Um, even just being very invested in something like cooking from scratch takes a lot of time and energy and creativity um, that maybe you're not using on the job um, because you are because you don't have a job or because you um you know you have a job that's not fully engaging you for whatever reason and I think this is you know, even for for younger women who don't have kids and for men and everybody I think dissatisfaction with the job definitely leads to a um, wanting to do more creative stuff. So if you're sort of bored in your job, like lots of us are, you know, especially with the recession and people maybe not having their dream job, like, yeah, you want to come home and you want to, you know, do something that you're engaged with and passionate about. And that's where, you know, raising your bees on the rooftop um, and, you know, and crocheting, that's where that kind of stuff comes in to fill that, to fill that gap. Well, speaking of uh, raising bees on rooftops, uh, mm-hmm. I was very curious about um, maybe some of the the more extreme or just intriguing examples of new domesticity, like you know, like someone washing, laundering their own clothes with you know the, an old school washboard or grinding their own flour, anything like that. I did not actually meet anyone who used an old fashioned washboard. That would be so much work. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but you know what? I'm sure somebody's doing it. I did meet lots of people who, you know, who hung their clothes to dry. Um, but I, I met, let's see, I met a woman in Brooklyn who was raising rabbits and chickens and bees in her Brooklyn backyard that was like, you know, the size of a postage stamp. Um, I met a woman who had been a web designer and had um, decided to just go off grid on her own and was living in like very rural upstate New York trying to raise sheep. Um, I met you know, women that were very into natural mothering who, you know, had six kids before they were 30 and were homeschooling all of them. Um, so, yeah, and people who people who were trying really hard to grow all their own food, um, some people who sewed all their family's clothes. So, yeah, I mean, you can <laughs> you can see how if, you know, you are really into new domesticity as like an entire lifestyle. Um, it's uh, it's quite time and energy consuming. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. Um, well, you also you mentioned a few minutes ago that you also spoke to some men about um, mm-hmm. new, domestic, new domesticity and uh, just wanted to know where they fit into it because, you know, it makes sense that a lot of the conversation is framed around uh, women, mothers who are very invested in this kind of uh, housekeeping and, and crafting and stuff. But obviously men are, are getting in on this as well. So what... What are they doing in terms of new domesticity? Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of the same things, really. Um, you know, I mean, women have historically um, a stronger and more complicated relationship with um, with the domestic sphere, but that's that's changing. And a lot of men, especially young men, are you know are also interested in in. DIY domesticity. I mean, tons of men are, you know, really interested in cooking and, you know, 
butchering their own bacon and uh, making stuff from scratch and pickling and all that stuff in the kitchen. Um, you know, I mean, I think men are definitely behind when it comes to, uh, you know, traditional crafts, um, which has been very, very female dominated over the years. But plenty of guys are are into other DIY type stuff. I mean, there are, there are some guys that are in, into knitting. I did interview a, um, a male quilter. Um, and, uh, but, you know, guys doing things like, you know, fixing their own bikes and other sorts of, of do it yourself, building things around the house, even guys who wanted to build their own houses. Um, and, uh, and yeah, when it comes to parenting, I mean, the, the whole natural parenting movement, does tend to be very mother centric but there are men I talked to who were involved in in stuff like like homeschooling their kids um and yeah and then the whole homesteading movement um a a lot of men are into that and a lot of the people I talked to um they would be couples and both partners would be involved in the homesteading to some degree which you know if you're going to be doing something as time consuming as raising animals you know in a suburban backyard it's a, a good thing if both of you are, uh, are invested in it. Is there anything that we didn't touch on uh, about new domesticity or uh, anything related to that that you would like our listeners to know about? I mean, I guess I just think um, new domesticity can mean a lot of different uh, different things. And for some people, you know, some people are just, you know, maybe involved in, you know, they just happen to like to, to knit or craft and it doesn't have any larger meaning than that. But I think when you take all these things together, I think it's definitely a movement to, you know, to reclaim, you know, some slower ways of living and, uh, and live in a more sustainable way and it's a reaction to the bad you know um economy and people's dissatisfaction with jobs and just sort of a general unhappiness with the status quo um that's leading people to be interested in everything from making their own clothes to growing their own food to you know homeschooling their kids so i think um it's a it's a lot of different things, but it means different things for different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. It's it's very interesting to see how, uh, like you you had said, it touches like so many different uh, people with different political affiliations, or might be have mm-hmm. religious motivations, or more secular motivations. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's kind of fascinating to see how it appeals to such a broad and diverse group of people. Um, but. Yeah, well, in my book, I have a whole chapter on um, on the sort of bizarre bedfellows of new domesticity, how you get stuff like, you know, the Amish and, uh, you know, bearded Brooklyn hipsters <laughs> who are, you know, swapping tips about, you know, seeds and growing tomatoes. And you get, you know, very, very conservative religious Christian women that are into natural mothering because it appeals to their sort of idea, you know, of of you know god-given motherly instinct and they're doing things like home birthing and homeschooling um cloth diapering and that whole thing just like the super liberal crunchy women of berkeley who are doing it for completely different reasons um so i think uh i think that's really fascinating this sort of that you know red state and blue state uh, would come together on the domestic front in this way 
So I'd like to go ahead and just thank Emily so much for talking to us. It was a really interesting interview. And I, I do think this whole concept of new domesticity is fascinating just simply, I mean, like taking all the rest of it out, just simply for the fact that so many different types of people subscribe to this philosophy of I'm going to make things at home. I'm going to make things myself. I'm going to, you know, provide for my family and myself uh, by making things with my own hands. Yeah. And it, it's really fascinating to me, too, what uh, what she hits on in terms of how it's often fueled, it seems like, by a general angst over the pace of our day-to-day life and needing to take time away from the hustle and bustle of 21st century living to to slow down and actually make things that we can hold and that we can eat and that we can take pictures of and put on Pinterest. Right. You know, that's the funny part of it. It's that tension between wanting to get away from it and yet the internet fueling it at the same time. Yeah. So um, I can't wait to hear from folks out there who are knitters and canners and cooks and chicken raisers, uh, new domesticity folks, I'm sure you know who you are. And again, um, you can find Emily Matcher's writing uh, all over the internet at places like the Washington Post, Salon, Men's Journal, the BBC, uh, the Hairpin, and other sites as well. And she also blogs at newdomesticity.com. And again, Emily Matcher's book, which is coming out in May 2013, is called Homeward Bound, The New Cult of Domesticity. It's coming out from Simon & Schuster. So keep an eye out for that. And again, thanks so much to Emily and for uh, folks who want to send us their thoughts on new domesticity and what you thought about what Emily had to say. You can send us an email. Momstuff at discovery.com is our address. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. 
Here is a letter from Joss. Kristen, she wrote in about our dieting and feminism is, uh, episode and was a little disappointed. Oh, man. She says she's disappointed that neither of us mentioned the idea of health at every size, or H-A-E-S. While not directly related to feminism, health at every size is a concept that many fat activists have been advocating. My understanding of health at every size is that it questions a lot of commonly held beliefs surrounding obesity and health, such as the supposed link between obesity and diabetes. Supporters of HAES advocate for eating a balanced diet and exercising regardless of how much weight loss it may or may not cause. Linda Bacon's book, Health at Every Size, The Surprising Truth About Your Weight, is a good place to start if you're new to the idea. There's quite a lot to be said about HAES and perhaps worth doing an entire episode on. Yeah, fat activism is um, something that we do need to talk about at some point so thanks for the point Joss yeah absolutely and I've got another email here in response to our episode on whether dating is a feminist issue and this is from Kendra and she writes I was appropriately enough working out at the gym when I listened to your podcast on dieting and feminism and I got so excited that I scooted my tush off the elliptical just to give my opinion on the issue She says, as a recovering anorexic, I spent most of high school dieting myself to a very unhealthy BMI. I was able to break away from the disease in part by making dieting a feminist issue in my own life. Every time I saw a calorie count go above 600 in a day, I justified it by using the battle cry and I will... take out the expletive here. Uh, Screw the patriarchy. Mm -mm. A few years have passed and I finally feel secure enough with myself to be able to look at diet and exercise a bit more objectively. While I still refuse to diet for weight loss, I find that daily exercise helps me in a number of ways beyond making me fit into my skinny jeans. I feel more relaxed, have better sleep, and even have clearer skin when I work out for even just 30 minutes a day. Besides, it gives me a great opportunity to listen to folks like you on a regular basis. So in summary, while I tend to disprove of women dieting just to get skinny because I worry about them slipping down the same rabbit hole that I did. I think that women, one and all, should always do whatever makes them feel like the best version of themselves. Here, here. Indeed. So thank you, Kendra and Joss and everyone else who has written into us. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters or you can head over to Facebook and start a conversation there and like us while you're at it. You can tweet us at Momstuff Podcast and you can also tumble with us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And again, huge thanks to Emily Matcher for taking the time to chat with us about new domesticity and her new book, Homeward Bound. Uh, Please check it out. And as always, if you would like to get a little smarter this week, you can head over to our website. It is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, 
or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.